I'm Cecilia Lay, and this is Fifth Emission. San Francisco's central solution to its homelessness crisis is a tiny room that's typically 80 square feet. They're known as single room occupancy units or SROs. SROs are a part of San Francisco's decades-old permanent supportive housing program. They're meant for people with complex needs, and the goal is to help them rebuild their lives after being unhoused. Earlier this spring, Chronicle reporters Joaquin Palomino and Trisha Thadani published a year-long investigation of the substandard living conditions in many SRO hotels. In an April 26 episode of Fifth Emission, we heard from tenants who shared that they were barely surviving inside. This place is just disgusting rats, roaches, and gnats, and the bathroom shit all on the walls. And this it's just terrible, you know, and that's, that's a ha- health hazard, too, because some people in here are sick. This building here, yeah. I don't feel safe in there at all because uh, they got somebody in there dying every week. Joaquin and Trisha's work didn't stop there. Rob, it's Trisha. Rob? It's me. Sorry, I'm a little early. How's it going? All right, how you doing? Okay? That's Trisha Thadani meeting with 49-year-old SRO tenant Robert Bowman in the mission earlier this week. Bowman has been a tenant of the city's supportive housing program, but he faces an issue that's at the heart of the Chronicle's latest SRO investigation, evictions. It's getting closer to like the time for me to get out. I don't know what's, what's next after this month. Yeah. Just being up all night and standing sick, like, I've never ever said that, like, it's been too much, but, like, it's getting to be too much. Since 2019, Mayor Lyndon Breed's administration has spent millions of taxpayer dollars to evict hundreds of people from buildings that were meant to lift them from the streets. Tenants are forced out of the SROs for many of the same reasons that qualified them for the room in the first place— poverty, mental illness, trauma, and an inability to care for themselves. At the same time, the city does not provide a formal safety net to ensure they don't end up homeless again. You can find Joaquin and Trisha's latest story at sfchronicle.com slash SRO evictions. They're with me today to talk about why vulnerable tenants are getting evicted and how the city isn't preventing them from returning to the streets. Joaquin Palomino, Trisha Thadani, welcome back. Trisha, let's start with you. Before we dive into your latest reporting, what came out of that last investigation which revealed the poor living conditions inside SROs? How did San Francisco address the concerns raised by you and Joaquin? Almost immediately after our last story came out, we saw two really big actions taken by the city. The first one and a big point of our last story was sort of this lack of oversight um, on the city's homelessness department. And we detailed the situation in 2019 when a supervisor tried creating an oversight commission and Mayor London Breed essentially lobbied against it and that measure was effectively killed. The Board of Supervisors, after a report came out, immediately revived that measure. So if that measure is passed by voters in November, that measure would essentially just create another layer of accountability on the Department of Homelessness. The second thing that happened was um, Mayor London Breed, in her current budget, she earmarked $67 million for permanent supportive housing. So the bulk of that, about $65 million, will go toward increasing pay for case managers and also hiring more case managers, which was also another major deficiency that we had detailed in our last investigation. And the remaining $5 million will go toward making 
sort of much needed repairs in some buildings. Okay, so Joaquin, living conditions are one thing, but as your previous reporting pointed out, this supportive housing is really intended to set unhoused people on a track for more permanent and stable living conditions. This most recent story reveals something else. SRO tenants often get evicted. Why? What are the reasons that are cited? So, yeah, we reviewed a lot of court cases. We talked to a lot of tenants. We looked through a lot of data for this report. Um, We found that about a quarter of all the sheriff's evictions or the evictions that were carried out by the sheriff's office since 2019 have been in this sort of small group of SROs that houses about 1% of the city's renters. And the reasons for eviction kind of run the gamut. Before the pandemic, when there was all these sort of restrictions put in place over um, when and how landlords could evict people, a good chunk of the evictions, about half, were over rent, so mm-hmm. people falling behind in money. And then the rest of the cases, it's a really wide range of issues. So you have people who might have hoarding disorder and they're failing to keep their room clean. It's attracting pests and vermin. You have um, some violent behavior, aggressive behavior. There's a lot of rules in these buildings when it comes to visitors and, and, and whatnot. And so sometimes people sort of repeatedly fail to follow those rules. But sort of underlying most of these issues are a lot of the things that sort of prioritize people for this housing program. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's mental illness, physical health conditions, trauma. A lot of people who, who are living in these buildings have been through immense trauma, poverty. Um, and so you're, you're seeing a lot of people sort of being prioritized for housing because they're dealing with a lot. And then when they get into housing and they struggle, they're getting kicked out for it. There were some cases where, you know, there was serious violence or, you know, for example, there would be a tenant who attacked another resident that might have sent them to a hospital. There were other cases where residents, you know, lit fires in rooms. Mm -hmm. And in those cases, I mean, those tenants are putting the entire building at risk. Mm -hmm. And in that case, the only thing to do or one of the only things to do to sort of protect the rest of the community is to evict them. Mm -hmm. But the problem that we found in our reporting is that when these people are evicted and these are the city's most vulnerable, there's often nowhere else for them to go. So the city offers no formal safety safety net for these people, even though they are purposely housing this population. Mm. And evicting people from SROs is a costly process, right? Joaquin, what goes into evicting an SRO tenant? It usually starts with an eviction notice. Mm -hmm. So someone will get a notice on their door saying they have a certain amount of time to either pay rent or correct other lease violations. If they fail to do so, and if the property manager wants to sort of escalate it to the next level, they can file a lawsuit. Um, And so some of those lawsuits result in these settlement agreements where the tenant sort of agrees to follow the rules for a year and and they can stay housed. In other cases, um, it is not successful and the tenant does get evicted. And that means the sheriff comes over and and secures the unit. So the cost in in some ways is a little murky. We are able to get averages from the city on how much it costs to defend each case. So that's about $4,500. When it comes to the cost of prosecuting it, we, we couldn't get it from the Department of Homelessness. They said that they did not have those figures. They did provide it for one of the nonprofits, so one of the sort of biggest nonprofits providing supportive housing. And they said it ran at about 2000 Some people told us, you know, could cost $10,000, $20,000 to litigate one of these complex cases. And all of this money for the most part, is coming from taxpayers. So they're funding the defense. They're funding the prosecution. And pretty much everyone we talked to said that that money would be better spent trying to sort of address the underlying issues that might be leading to eviction rather mm-hmm. than 
litigating these issues in court. So you mentioned that you looked through a lot of records and documents to try to figure out how often this was happening, but not every eviction is recorded, right? Do we have a sense of the scope of this problem? So through our reporting, we found that we really don't have a good sense through official numbers of what the scope of the displacement is. So we found that the city is really relying on a very narrow definition of what is an eviction. Their definition, it is when a sheriff is ordered to evict a tenant from a unit. We found that the scope of displacement is likely a lot higher Mm. than just those official cases where the sheriff is involved. We came across several cases just in our own reporting of people who either struck deals with the property management where essentially they'll say like, okay, you are going to get evicted. You're going to lose this case. But if you leave your room by X date, if you leave it before then without any incident, we'll dismiss the case. Mm -hmm. We followed one couple who was going through this and they have to leave by August 31st and you know, we've been following them the last couple of months and they have no idea where they're going to go next. And they're essentially planning to be homeless, but their case will not be recorded in official statistics. Then there's another untold number of cases. This was, has been verified by case managers and nonprofit providers who say this happens frequently, where if someone does just receive an eviction notice, they might not have the wherewithal to understand that they do have a right to fight it. So they'll just get up and leave. Mm-hmm. Or others who are in the middle of litigation, the city doesn't track who leaves when they're in that process. Mm-hmm. And the city used to track evictions in a more comprehensive way, but in recent years has started just relying on this more narrow definition. Mm. And just to jump in, um, so the city, I mean, when they do rely on this sort of more narrow definition of evictions, when the sheriff's office are sort of ordered to secure the tenant's room, they point to the fact that only about 2% of residents are evicted in this way each Mm -hmm. year. And so in their view, that's a low number because especially given the population being housed. And so we did think it, it, it is important just to note that there are sort of all these other cases that are going on that, that we don't know about that aren't right. really being tracked. We, we met multiple people who agreed to these move out agreements. Um, you know, we've heard of many people who left after receiving a notice just because it is a confusing thing to get. We talked to one eviction defense attorney who said that, you know, this problem is much bigger than, mm-hmm. than we know. And, and the city has to know that. And there's really real harm in not having accurate data. What prompts politicians and you know department heads to act is when the numbers are telling them to. So presumably, if we had more accurate accounting of what the actual displacement was and is, um, we might have more action on the city when it comes to this issue. Joaquin, the central character in the story is a 49-year-old man named Robert Bowman who has congestive heart failure. In his time in supportive housing, he faced a number of evictions from more than one SRO building because he broke one rule. Tell me more. So yeah, Robert Bowman became homeless around 2008. He came to San Francisco because he thought he's an openly gay man. He thought he would find sort of acceptance here. It was Mm -hmm. a community where he felt safe and comfortable and has now been evicted from two supportive housing SROs, and and both of them revolved largely around this one rule over visitors. So most SROs have these uniform visitor policies. Mm -hmm. So it sort of regulates who can come into the building. People can only come in during certain times of the day. You can only have so many overnight guests. Everyone has to be signed in and out. Everyone needs a valid photo ID. So there's sort of a lot of rules. And if, if you violate them too many times, the building can actually ban you from having anyone over for mm-hmm. 30 days. Mm-hmm. 
And so both times that's what happened to uh, Robert. He's a very social person and he would have friends over. And initially he wouldn't sign them in. Then he would be banned from having guests over. So then anytime anyone came over, it was a violation. And so that was really at the heart of both of his evictions. Also, it's important to note that at least later on, like he was diagnosed with congestive heart failure Mm -hmm. um, a few years ago. And it was really important for him to have people over when that happened, both to sort of help with just the day-to-day activities that he couldn't do because of his sort of struggles moving around the city, Mm -hmm. but also for his mental health. He became like really afraid of dying alone, Mm -hmm. really, really afraid. And he was told once that people with this uh, disease sometimes go to sleep, they never wake up. So he wanted to be around people, um, Mm -hmm. especially when he he slept and he did sleep a lot. Mm -hmm. And so he was in this sort of position where he was living in a building where it was really hard to have his friends over, but for his own mental health, he really felt like he needed it. You both chatted with and followed Robert extensively throughout your reporting. Trisha, let's listen to a part of a recent conversation you had with him where he tells you how unfair it is to be evicted for having visitors over. Like, had I been out of jail or um, institutionalized, maybe, yeah, then of course, like, there should be a little more structure or a little more, like, rules to my living situation. I'm never been arrested, none of that shit. Like, like I just like having my friends around. That's it. This is a new part of my life where, like, I'm, I'm able to accept me being me. And, and I, I like me. I like who I am. So, Trisha, you both spoke to dozens of SRO tenants who have faced eviction for your story. What happens to people like Robert after they leave a hotel? Yeah, so we largely found that People, once they're evicted, are either going back out to the streets or to a shelter. The crux of the problem here is that the city does not offer a safety net for people who are ultimately evicted. Now, before they are evicted, multiple nonprofit providers told us that, you know, they do give people multiple chances. They do try to work with people as much as they can. But once it finally gets to that point um, where they ultimately kick the person out of the building, there are not many options available Mm -hmm. to them. And we saw this exactly happen in Robert's case. So while his eviction was being litigated in court, Robert said that the case manager in his building, there was no communication from them as to where he could go next. Mm -hmm. A social worker that was working with his attorney was able to secure him um, a private SRO for a couple of months. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, Robert can't afford that on his own. He's getting assistance through a city fund to be able to um, pay for that. Mm -hmm. And that runs out August 31st. And so he also does not know where he's going to go next. Mm-hmm. And the thing about that room that he was in, um, it was even smaller than his last one. Both Joaquin and I have been in many SROs at this point, and it is the smallest one mm-hmm. that we have seen. The visitor policy is even more strict. And because of those factors, he's actually been instead sleeping in a tent in the tenderloin. He prefers the tent. He prefers the tent because he has more freedom there. He can be around people, which, as Joaquin said, that's very important. That's critical to him and his mental health. Um, And so he's essentially just been using this room, which is in the mission, as a place where to keep his stuff and to shower. But by and large, he's spending most of his time in a tent. And that's where he anticipates going once the funding for his current room runs out soon. Mm. So, Joaquin, it's clear that the stakes of being evicted from an SRO are quite high. And we learned from your last investigation that the city relies on nonprofit operators to run these buildings. And in the case of Robert, you looked at the nonprofit 
operator of one of the hotels he stayed at, Elm Hotel. What did you learn about the eviction policy there or the guidelines? The Elm Hotel is operated by Episcopal Community Services. Um, they actually have a subcontract for the property management to Caritas Management Corporation. Mm-hmm. So technically, Caritas is the entity that evicted Robert, but Episcopal ultimately is is operating this building. Mm-hmm. Overall, we found that there's a lack of consistency really in, in sort of eviction policies, procedures across supportive housing. So there's some nonprofits that really rarely pursue eviction. Mm-hmm. And then there's other Nonprofits are the buildings that are sort of quicker to turn to evictions. And so the Elm had a relatively high eviction rate where Robert lived. Caritas declined to speak with us and they managed the property. Episcopal declined to speak with us. They have the contract to sort of run the whole Elm Hotel supportive housing program. But what we did find through public records requests is that Caritas, at least, does not have sort of an express written eviction policy. Mm. And so other nonprofits do where they sort of spell out, you know, here are the steps you're going to take to try and prevent evictions from happening. And it did not seem that Caritas does from the records we got. And so, yeah, what we found is, you know, there, there could be more sort of best practices when it comes to eviction prevention. The only way that would be implemented sort of across this whole portfolio would be if the Department of Homelessness were to sort of enforce that and to do that. And we found that they have not sort of created these consistent guidelines for these programs to follow. More with Joaquin Palomino and Trisha Thadani after a quick break. Their story about SRO evictions in San Francisco is at sfchronicle.com slash SRO evictions. How could San Francisco improve its permanent supportive housing program? They'll share what one Bay Area county is doing to keep tenants housed after the break. We'll be right back. You can support the newsroom that creates Fifth Emission by signing up for unlimited access at sfchronicle.com slash pod or by downloading the San Francisco Chronicle app. So, Tricia, this was noted in your last reporting, and it's worth highlighting again. The nonprofit operators of SRO buildings are often severely understaffed. Some counselors that work in the hotels can have caseloads of up to 85 residents. How does that contribute to the evictions? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest deficiencies that we found in San Francisco's supportive housing system is that it is chronically understaffed. And at its core, supportive housing is supposed to have support. So we found in buildings that are severely understaffed that case managers often don't have time to proactively work with tenants to ensure that sort of these issues don't boil over, whether that's personal issues like hoarding, for example, Mm -hmm. if someone is having a hard time maintaining their room. We spoke to several case managers who said they don't really have that, that capacity to work with that tenant to figure out the underlying reason behind that or with interpersonal conflicts between residents. Mm -hmm. So by and large, the nonprofit providers that we spoke to will point to this idea that the buildings are so understaffed and their inability to provide more um, more support to these tenants does lead to more evictions. Mm. Yeah, and the city and Tricia brought this up earlier. Mayor London Breed, in, in her upcoming budget, has set aside money to sort of boost services. And so the goal is to bring those incredibly high ratios of case managers to tenants that we documented in the first story down to a 1 to 25 ratio. Mm-hmm. Through decisions the city is making, there are still people moving into some of these SROs that need sort of an incredible amount of support. Mm-hmm. And some people are concerned that, you know, even with this additional funding, that 
it might not be enough. Mm -hmm. But there really are no other options for a lot of people in the city. So what we're seeing with these SROs really in, in some ways is a failure of other systems as well that could be housing some of the like highest acuity tenants who really have very serious mental illness or behavioral health issues who need really intensive support, um, but there's just there's no place for them to get it. To highlight some of these deficiencies, Joaquin, you both looked at a neighboring county, Santa Clara, which found a way to provide a safety net for residents with similar challenges that you're describing here. What did you find out? So there's a program in Santa Clara County called Project Welcome Home. It launched in 2015. The goal was to house about 150 to 200 of sort of the most medically frail people, so the people who use the most emergency medical services, people who were often in spend time in jails, were often in emergency shelters, um, really, as it was described to us, sort of the sickest of the sick of the homeless population in mm-hmm. Santa Clara County. And so they employed a scattered site model. They rented sort of apartments on the private market, and they housed people uh, in, in these units, and they provided really robust support. So they had behavioral health clinicians. They had a a harm reduction specialist. They had peer counselors. They had caseloads no higher than 15. And even then, they anticipated there would be issues. Um, The director of the nonprofit that runs this program, she said, is they sort of knew that people who had been on the streets the longest, people who had these really um, serious health issues, were not expected to be successful in housing on the first try. Mm -hmm. And so they gave them a lot of chances. But then also when there are issues, they would rent these vacant units so that if it was clear that this person was not going to succeed in this one housing site, they could move into the vacant unit, find somewhere else for them to go. And it prevented what we're seeing in San Francisco, which is this sort of big churn back to the streets when people are evicted. And it was successful. Hmm. About 86% of the people in the program, according to a 2020 study, stayed housed for uh, several years. Mm -hmm. But it is important to note that most of those people, about three quarters, did not succeed on the first try. Mm. They moved one time, two times, three times, as many as 10 times. Mm. So it's about not penalizing them. And and expecting this, right? Mm. And anticipating that some people are not going to succeed on the first try, maybe not even on the second try, but that um, it takes a while sometimes for people to adjust to being housed after spending long times on the street. It is also important, though, to note that they have a lot of funding. Um, and and this costs a lot of money. So to you know implement a similar program at scale mm-hmm. would you know it'd be an investment. Mm-hmm. So Trisha, it's also worth noting that the threat of eviction itself is very impactful for people. Let's listen to Robert Bowman again. Talk about what the threat of eviction does to him mentally. For it to end up this way, it is all the time being threatened to get kicked out or to lose my housing. I think it fucks with you. I, I know it fucks with me mentally. Like every time it, it just makes it a little worse, a little worse, a little worse. Like I feel myself going crazy every fucking day, like to where I have to reassure myself, like the way I'm thinking isn't, I'm not thinking wrong or or, or I'm not losing my mind or anything like that. So, Trisha, some tenants end up leaving their housing without a formal eviction or even a fight, and that really matters, right? The mental impact of getting an eviction notice cannot be understated. You know, these are ready people who are kind of on edge, who are very vulnerable, who often have no other options. 
And when you get a notice, um, and they often can be very scary and seem very firm, often this sends people into a spiral. Um, we'd spoken to one guy who, he was actually uh, Robert's neighbor, and he had gotten an eviction notice for hoarding. And he said, he was like, I know that my room is a mess, um, and I know that I have this problem, but I was homeless for 18 years. Like, I don't know how to live on my own, but I'm working on it. And in Robert's case, you know, before he was evicted, he really spoke about this mental toll that it took on him in the sense that, you know, for years he had been in and out of court dealing with lawyers. And he was like, at at some point, it's just less stressful to be outside than to be inside and wondering if I'm going to get kicked out and wondering what the next step is. So what will happen to Robert now? I mean, he doesn't have many options. And for a guy like Robert, that's really scary, given how sick he is. I mean, he's an older guy who has congestive heart failure. Even in the last few months of of following him, I mean, Joaquin and I have personally seen him um, deteriorate a little Mm -hmm. bit especially in the nights that he's mostly spending in the tent. He recently just ended up in the hospital for pneumonia and someone who's already very fragile and sick. That's a very scary thing. So he's kind of at the whims of of our city system at this point. Right now, his lawyer is trying to figure out what his next step could be. But but right now, it's not looking so good. And we just recently spoke to him and he said that he's planning on, you know, finding another tent and going back out to the streets. Mm. So I want to ask both of you, you spent the last year looking closely at the living conditions inside SROs, and now you've looked at how residents are getting evicted. What does this sort of say about the city's reliance on this supportive housing? I mean, it feels like it's not working. Yeah, I mean, it shows a lot of flaws in the current system. It can't be overstated how important it is to put a roof over someone's head. Mm -hmm. But where the system falls short is that the support isn't always there. But what we found, particularly through this story, is just as Joaquin had mentioned earlier, is just kind of this like wider failing of the system as a whole. Mm-hmm. You know, San Francisco notoriously has a shortage of treatment options, both for drug treatment and mental health care treatment, and also just affordable housing in general. And as a result, these SROs, um, you know, which are often century old, are pretty run down, have become the default for very, very vulnerable and sick people. And in order to sort of rectify this, I mean, the city needs to make some more like very serious investments into the rest of the system so that people who, you know, are in these SROs but aren't necessarily going to thrive there will have other options on where to go. But Joaquin, is it about investments or is it a strategy that's inherently flawed? So I think, I mean, that's the, it's a hard question to answer, right? Mm -hmm. Because historically the city has not done a great job either investing in these programs or overseeing these programs. Mm -hmm. Um, And it seems like, they're starting to change that to an extent. And so I guess we will see, right? Like mm-hmm. if if you actually put forth the resources and put forth the energy to run these programs as they should be run, will it change much? Well, even within the supportive housing stock, there's some SROs that are run great and there's some that really struggle. And so I guess, you know, the question is, you know, can the city make it so that most of them fit into that prior category, mm. the SROs that run really well? And it will take investment, but it also take a lot more oversight and a lot more accountability as well. Trisha Thadani and Joaquin Palomino are reporters at The Chronicle. Find their story about SRO tenant evictions at sfchronicle.com slash SRO evictions. The Chronicle reached out to both Mayor London Breed and the Department of Homelessness and Supportive Housing, or HSH, to respond to the concerns raised in the story. 
Breed declined multiple requests for comment. In an interview with Shireen McSpadden, the director of HSH, the agency said that it is currently drafting standard eviction policies for all supportive housing providers. The guidelines will include a list of resources for case managers and tenants, as well as detailed steps that frontline workers should take when responding to lease violations and other issues. HSH also pointed to the city's new efforts to improve deficiencies in SROs. That includes launching a roving team of clinicians to provide physical and behavioral health services to tenants, as well as expanding in-home support services for SRO residents at risk of losing their housing. The agency currently has $50 million budgeted for homelessness prevention. Some of those funds will go towards SRO residents. Thank you to Karen Creighton for editing this episode and to you for listening.